The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. On the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for seeking out a voice of reform, a voice of American nationalism, patriotism, a faith in liberty. Muslim who believes that we as Muslims need to lead the effort to counter the ideologies that not only are about violence, but those that are the precursors of radical Islam, political Islam, the Islamic State concept, not only in ISIS, but all Islamic states. And here at this podcast, I hope you find a voice of reason. And week to week, you and I together in this journey, we confront the issues that you will not find on regular media, the issues that are often left because of political correctness in the circular bin of the media production tables. And here they'll be for at the forefront, a place that you can begin to ponder, begin to think about what it is we can do as Americans, as Muslims, as people of faith or no faith, to confront the ideology that threatens our security. A lot to talk about this week. First, I have to jump to DC Comics, one of the battlefronts for modern society, one of the battlefronts for the defense of freedom. Yes, DC Comics, not only... For the Marvel characters of Captain America and Iron Man and those characters that you know well. But now, Variety says that a Muslim character, an American Muslim character is coming as a response to Trump. Oh yeah, the Muslim superhero is going to save the Muslim community and all of its misperceptions from our commander-in-chief. Is that bizarre or what? That is bizarre. We have had a long conversation here and elsewhere, for those of you who follow me, about the need. Yes, it is true. Popular culture, American popular culture, should be the forefront, the battlefront for many of the perceptions and the shift in society. Yes, comedians, music, art can be, as I said, after the Manchester bombing, Adriana uh, Ariana Grande had a unbelievable opportunity to tell her millions that her Dangerous Woman concert was going to be the forefront, the rallying cry for living and, and, and supporting and leading women who wanted to be liberated from the shackles of the Sharia state, not only abroad in Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia, but also in London where it has its own Sharia courts and elsewhere. But no, that would be too politically incorrect. And it's not only music. We see uh, with One Direction and now Zayn Malik, who's on his own. Uh, there are Muslim icons in the culture who could use their platform, not to get into the theology. I get it. You know, I get it that a musician wants to avoid well wait a minute 
You look at U2, you look at uh, a ton of bands who... Pink Floyd now has gone all political and made his concerts into a a three-hour anti-Trump fest. So, you know, there's those musicians who feel they can use their platforms. Now, I'm not big on that. I, I, I like to go listen to musicians who I often don't care what their politics are and just want to listen to their talent. But maybe we can do a little bit of both. Maybe the... Zayn Malik's, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's, and as we saw with the late Muhammad Ali, can use their platforms for good. Not only peace and charity, but for reform. To get the unaffiliated Muslim, who's that 85% of the American Muslim population is not affiliated with any organized Islamist group. So why can't we get them to wake up, get the cultural Muslims who are owning large corporations who are secular from their behavior, maybe get them to wake up and begin to create Islamic groups that are, just by virtue of not being Islamists, begin to reject the Islamists. And we start to get to that 10%. What's the 10%? Uh, We'll talk about that. It's a study that I want to talk to you about that uh, we often or too often forget the importance of that talks about the fact that sometimes, yeah, from the Bolsheviks to the Tea Party, you know, it, it takes 10% of the population to begin to have a tipping point to shift, to shift the public culture of political movements and mindsets. I started talking today about DC Comics. Well, what's happening over at DC Comics? Well, the DC comic folks and uh, one of the main producers, Guggenheim, wants to respond, wants to respond to... Trump by creating an American Muslim computer hacktivist from the future named Zari Adriana Tomas, played by the actress Tala Ash, who is of Iranian descent. Mark Guggenheim told the Television Critics Association during a press tour in Beverly Hills not to get political, but something that we all gravitated toward in the writer's room was making this character Muslim. Representation is really a powerful thing, said Ash, who plays the Muslim superhero. When I was growing up watching television, I didn't see anyone who looked like me. When I think of the kid version of myself, I think it broadens your perspective. What I think is so lovely about this show is that the legends are this tapestry that represent America today. But yet, they stressed, they made a point to define a character by their race they, or sexual orientation or religion is not something that Guggenheim said his characters try to do. But basically, they're still going to do it with Muslims because we need help. We need aid. Come on. And and actually, initial initial storylines about this was that the character was going to be brought back. The character ISIS. <laughs> I, 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 you cannot make this stuff up. ISIS. Now, what's ISIS? ISIS was that Egyptian hero mythological hero whose husband Osiris is well known in the mythology and was known to be a superhero. Not religious of any connotations, but happened to be a name with some Greek and Egyptian origins. But bottom line is is that was the name of the character they were going to bring back now. Maybe finally within a week or two into the story that that name might be scrubbed, but they're still talking about bringing a Muslim superhero. Imagine a a conservative 
activist or artist talking about bringing a Muslim superhero by the name of ISIS. Imagine how they would say, oh, it's being done intentionally to make Muslims appear to be radicals because how dumb could they be not to connect that with the ISIS of the Middle East, the most barbaric terror organization now state on the planet. But no, when a liberal like Guggenheim or others come up with this, people say, oh, no, 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 it's just the old superhero of the 70s that people knew who Isis and Osiris were. This has nothing to do with radicals. We want to we want to champion and lead respect for Muslim superheroes. Now, come on. If you want to change the image of Muslims, there's a lot of Muslims, as I mentioned, in sports, in music, in art. It doesn't seem to be affecting the perception of Muslims. Why? Because American culture is not stupid. They don't see Muslims building think tanks, counter-terrorism centers. I talked many years ago when 24 came out and all the typical Islamist think tanks were whining about how stereotypical it was for Kiefer Sutherland and and, uh, uh, to have this character that had the bad guys as being the radical 25-year-old Muslims who were terrorists that were blowing up the place and destroying the world. And sure enough, Kiefer does a public service announcement in which he proclaims that it was not his intent to demonize Muslims. His intent was to talk about how moderate they were and they had an analyst on the 24 cast who was portraying a Muslim that was part of the team but still he apologized and the production company over at Fox apologized and on and on it was nauseating and I wrote a piece in National Review at the time saying where is the Muslim CTU where is the Muslim counterterrorism unit that should be leading the way to counter the ideas that are radicalizing our community. That that would be something to write about. A Muslim Kiefer Sutherland, a Muslim book and fictional, you know, fiction based on fact story that clearly delineates that we are the ones who will lead both analytically, theologically, politically, and militarily the battle against ISIS and the evil organizations and governments that are led by Muslim militant ideologies and ideologues. But no. Nope, we just whine to the Americans that somehow at the end of the day it's always their problems, it's always we who are the victims as Muslims, and none of that ever came out. Now, how many years post we now have after 24 Homeland that's come out? And still, no writers have thought to make a Muslim reform-minded think tank that is ideologically confronting and militarily in the civilian society confronting the radical imams, the mosques, the Islamist groups, the Salafi jihadist movements that you and I have talked about week to week. Hasn't happened yet. DC Comics instead does their little identity racializing of Muslims that they'll have a character that, oh, by the way, happens to be Muslim. 
if you really want to build a Muslim superhero that will impact Western culture, have that Muslim superhero lead week after week a storyline that reforms and protects the reformists around the world, just like Spider-Man and others protected those who were the good people in society from the evil and the corrupt, have the Muslim superheroes specifically protect the moderate reformists, the Rafe Bedouis of the world, and get them out of prison and begin to be to begin to break the necks of the Islamist regimes, the Saudis, the House of Sauds, and the Khomeinist governments of the world. Where's those? Storylines. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. We'll be right back. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Uh, we're talking about DC Comics and Marvel's attempt to check off the affirmative action program for Muslims and have a superhero who happens to be Muslim. That's great. In theory, nothing to uh, complain there uh, about. But, first of all, initially it was going to be called ISIS. You can't make this stuff up seriously. It was going to be called ISIS. Bizarre. Misfire at Marvel. Now they're saying that it's a different character, uh, a, a superwoman, if you will, which, again, ISIS was a woman in the 70s. So, But the bottom line is, is I think the uh, lefties, uh, Guggenheim and others over there at uh, Marvel, realized that that would be a dumb, dumb idea that uh, – um, you just can't call a superhero ISIS based on the way ISIS has been rebranded. Uh, I, I told them to call. I tweeted out this week that, hey, Linda Sarsour, this is a good job for you. You wanted to rebrand jihad. You said, oh, jihad is not militant. It's not a holy war. We own it as Muslims. It means struggle, personal struggle. That might be true. Yeah, that there's clear references in the Quran to jihad being a benevolent thing. But at the end of the day, you really want to debate the fact that violent jihad is a major definition for groups from the Brotherhood to Iran to Wahhabis and others when the Brotherhood still has as its seal, even after having won an election, it still has as its seal two swords and says dying by the way of jihad and Allah is our goal. And she wants to rebrand it. And she used that idiocy to get her national attention. But even the left... I don't know if you all saw Barry Weiss's column in the New York Times this week. I think that it was wonderful. You finally had the the groupthink at the left saying, listen, regardless of what you think about equality and, and minority rights, etc., 
Linda Sarsour is pretty radical. Hats off to Barry for publishing that in the New York. Hats off to the New York Times. I've submitted, I think, over 20 pieces in the past 10 years to the New York Times and have never been published by them, despite being published four times by the Wall Street Journal, National Review, and others. So it's not like, you know, you can say that necessarily is related to the writing quality. Maybe it was. But the bottom line is, is that uh, they typically do not publish voices that disagree with their groupthink and collectivist mentality at the New York Times. But Mustafa Akil has been published uh, a number of times, and I think his uh, vision of anti-Islamism and pro-liberty is very welcome. And now we see Barry Weiss's column against Linda Sorsour this week was very welcome. So, yeah, maybe maybe Marvel Comics should get Linda Sorsour to rebrand ISIS as the superwoman and call her ISIS and see how that works for their sales. Uh, it's not going to work. Nope. American culture, no matter how you try to do it, whether through comedy, through cartoons, through superheroes, through music, you can't defeat the reality of what's happening around the world with radical and militant Islamism. So if you need a superhero, if you need a superhero, get one, please, that leads a group of Muslims to protect them. How about an episode where a Muslim superhero protects that liberal mosque in Germany that now needs 24-7 protection because a woman who founded it and formed it wants to have women-led prayers, wants to have men and women pray next to each other, wants to have revolutionary things such as not mandate the hijab inside the mosque, allow variant opinions that are be considered heresy by most Salafi jihadists and Wahhabists to allow a vibrant discussion as many of us Muslims believe as part of the Islamic faith, wants to open the doors of Ishtihad, which is reform and modern thinking, to allow that mosque to do that. And now the German police have been forced, not forced, I think out of their goodwill for maintaining German identity, have now provided protection for that mosque because the radicals don't want to see the foothold of moderation take place. We're trying to contact the the woman that leads that mosque because I think she should be a part, I hope, and pray that she'd be a part of our Muslim reform movement that many of us have been have been so invested to. But it's time, I think, you know, the 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 issue that we've been talking about with DC Comics, where is the movement? Yes. I'll continue. That we'll continue the theological debate about the reality of certain passages in the Quran, and what do you do to with, with the literate, literality, the literalism of interpretation of various scripture passages? What do you do with the militancy of various passages of Hadith, etc.? That's all important. But I can tell you, as I've quoted, as I've quoted Drucker before, the businessman who said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. That ultimately, you cannot, you cannot even begin to contemplate reform without a general popular movement in the culture with diverse roots from business communities to music communities to art communities, university, and then into the theological communities. I believe if you read Christian Reformation history in Europe, 
Yeah, there is that detail that 8 million people died in 30 years of the 30 years war. But set aside the, the bloody nature of what happened, it started with the lay community, the business community providing platforms for pushing back against theocratic control. There's a slide I show in some of the talks that I give on the need for a revolution within Islam. That that revolution, if you look at the 60s here in the South, that that revolution, the 60s civil rights movement from a minority, that civil rights movement from the minority started when you started to see pictures of fire hoses being turned upon the African-American community. When you started to see... um, when you started to see the images of the marches on the bridges, the rejection, the marches towards in the streets of Alabama that showed and the pictures and the images that they were not going to accept second, third, or fourth class status. But it was those images that ultimately got into the gut, got into the soul and consciousness of the majority of the non-black American community, the white community, that finally began to have their heartstrings pulled, despite decades of complaints, a century, if not more, of racism that existed. But it was those images that did it. So we need images. We need, as Muslims, to begin fighting back. Yes, I, you know, you hear some of these anti-Sharia marches happening, and, you know, yeah, it's true, Sharia is the main problem. But you're not going to beat that by marching in white neighborhoods and not near mosques and not near embassies. You need to protest the right people. So you protest the the people pushing the Sharia by other Muslims. We need a Muslim anti-Islamist movement within the Muslim community led by Muslim leaders, business community, large influential cultural icons need to be part of this in order for it to take root. So not only does the liberal media need to wake up, the CNNs and MSNBCs and New York Times of the world, but the Kennedy Center of the Arts, the comics, DC Comics, the music, the Billboard Top 40, the XM radios of the world need to start highlighting not only Muslim names, but reformists where you see the Lady Gagas of the world. We need Muslim icons like that that can begin to show and push the envelope. It was amazing. You had uh, um, a musical icon, and I'm trying to remember her name, who wore a hijab but then had a pretty revealing bottom. And she did that out of solidarity with the Muslim world. Now, oh yeah, it's uh, Alicia Keys. So Alicia Keys tweets out a picture wearing a hijab with a holter top or whatever it was in solidarity. And many of the reformist Muslims then reject that and say, listen, the hijab is a, is a tool for oppression. And she even wore, I think, a face veil on it. How offensive is that? Solidarity with who? The Iranian regime, the Saudi regime that calls women that are rape victims the criminals because they were alone with men because of their dress? That is absurd. Absurd. 
So then she pulls the picture, deletes her tweet, despite tens of thousands, if not millions, of retweets. It shows you that the cultural icons that could shift public opinion overnight, overnight, by actually instead of minimizing and using the oppressing, the tools that women are oppressed with, with actually lifting up women reformers who reject openly the hijab. We had a chess player that went to Iran. She refused to wear the hijab. Now, she's non-Muslim, but the chess international tournament was being held in Tehran. She said, I will not go and not wear the, and wear the hijab for them. And she was mocked by the head of the, uh, the, the international chess company, corporation, whatever it's called. And that issue wasn't really publicized. Now, Azur Nomani and others publicized it, that she's a hero for standing up, that here is a leading woman figure of intellectual prowess globally in the chess community, number one ranked, who refused to wear a hijab when she participated in the chess tournament in Tehran and the, the the board, etc., of that tournament said, listen, we're not going to make political statements. We have to follow the traditions of Iran. I don't know what happened ultimately with it, but she refused to go. We need to follow that up. I think the tournament hasn't happened, so it's still in dispute. But the bottom line is, is that this is how things change. People tell me, oh, you got to get the details of Chapter 5 and this theological argument down. Yeah, that's part of it. Absolutely. Intellectual academic rigor is very important and that we get the right scholarship correct when correcting the theologians that are Islamist fascists. But this war, ultimately, reformation is going to be fought in the cultural battlefronts, in music and art and cartoons, comedy, etc., when that part of the world, when somebody does a video and it gets two million hits and it mocks something that's related to Islam and Muslims and lifts up reformers, that's how quickly we are going to change the mindset of the planet when it comes to Islam, Muslims, and Reformation. And later with it will come the marginalizations of theocrats and the lifting up of real liberal thinkers, critical thinkers. So that CTU, that counterterrorism unit, yes, hopefully it'll be Muslims leading reform and hopefully it'll be critical thinking units, critical thinkers that are then lifted up and join hands with not the Alicia Keys of the world that lift up the veil-wearing women, but the other Muslims, the other cultural icons that lift up the real reformers and demand at every Muslim country that's majority release the reformers out of jail, release the liberal thinkers, the apostates, blasphemers out of jail because they are our heroes of today. And that's how you reform this. This is Udi Jasser. We'll be right back. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on Blaze Radio Network. We're talking about cultural shifts. What does it take for an idea to grab hold, for an idea to become part of the mainstay of movement or to become basically a movement? There are many elements to this, and there's a lot of uh, writers, successful 
leaders of movements that uh, can speak to this uh, uh, much better than I do. But at the end of the day, I think there's one study that uh, I wanted to spend a little time talking to you about. You know, we were talking in the last few segments about why it's so important to get cultural icons, musicians, artists, actors, Hollywood, known figures to buy into an idea because they can shift the masses a lot more quickly than sort of the ivory tower academicians or politicians who often will not have, not only do we not have the the platforms at times, but popular culture needs to shift in a way that causes changes in the general prominence of a particular idea from the water cooler to the cars to the radios to the media, if you will, versus simply in a book that a few may have read or an article in a, in a newspaper that a few may have read. What does it take? And, you know, a lot of people guess and say, oh, 5%, 20%. Well, this has been studied, and many of us have guessed and said around 10%, but there was actually a study that looked at what is exactly the tipping point for the spread of ideas? And scientists actually were able to show a significant point of deflection, if you will, in the percent of people that need to be involved and engaged in a societal movement for those ideas to simply take off. It's the tipping point. And the Social Cognitive Network Academic Research Center, the SCNARC, talked about the fact it said scientists at the Renaissance Polytechnic Institute have found that when just 10% of the population holds an unshakable belief, their belief will always be adopted by the majority of society. The scientists who are members of the Social Cognitive Network's Academic Research Center at Rensselaer used computational analytical methods to discover the tipping point where a minority belief becomes the majority opinion. The finding has implications for the study and influence of societal interactions ranging from the spread of innovations to the government of political ideals. The researcher said, quote, when the number of committed opinion holders is below 10%, there's no visible palpable progress in the spread of ideas. It will literally take the amount of time comparable to the age of the universe for this size group to reach the majority, said the director of the Bolslaus's Maskey the Claire and Roland Schmidt Distinguished Professor at Renislaw. So Dr. Sesmaski said that once that the number grows above 10%, the idea spreads like wildfire, like a flame, he said. As an example, they looked at the Arab Awakening. The events in Tunisia and Egypt appear to exhibit a similar process, of course, Zemansky. According to Zemansky, he said, in those countries, dictators who were in power for decades were suddenly overthrown in just a few weeks. So, in the Journal of Physical Review, on the social consensus through the influence of committed minorities from July 22, 2011, Dr. Zemansky and others proved, and you can see the graph in which they show social changes, are minority opinions taking off and become majority? What is the threshold? This is the key. What is the threshold in which a minority opinion can become the majority opinion? So, again, they, they studied 
global movements and generally focused on democracies because you need free flow of ideas. So this is even with free flow of ideas. If you're living in a dictatorship, if you're living in a tyranny, tyranny, these rules probably are much different. But maybe not. What is the threshold in Syria? One of the world's worst tyrannies in which the revolution finally took off. My family had left Syria in the 60s. My grandfather had abandoned his Syrian nationalism in exchange for American nationalism as an American patriot. Not only, obviously, primarily because of the freedoms and the patriotism he felt and my father felt and parents felt coming to the, the greatest land of freedom in the planet and democracy in the planet. But they also abandoned their Syrian identity because they said it failed. The Syrian people, as my grandfather said, deserve the government they got because they would not do anything to change it. Now, he generalized, but he was right for the most part. Yes, the prisons were filled and lined with tortured citizens who tried to speak against their government, with abused, raped people of Syria that the government, the Ba'ath Party, suppressed with their boots and their guns and their knives in a way that prevented revolution for decades. So what changed in 2011? I think it was not only social media, which was the instrument, but the 10% rule. All of a sudden in Daraa, a little town, images were spread, videos of the police targeting children and teens and their parents as they marched the street and were pegged off by rifles. And other Syrians saw this and they talked about having a day of revolution. And that spread to other rural towns, not to the big cities, but into rural towns. So was this a majority initially in Syria? No. And during the first months of the revolution, they said, this revolution will not take unless it also goes to Damascus and to Aleppo, the two largest metropolitan cities, each with three and four to five million people in a country totally of 21 million. So you do the math. And literally, it probably was around 10% of the rural areas that finally tipped Syria into changing from minority, a government run of, of a tyrannical regime of the minority running the majority, whichever way you want to define that majority, be it Sunni or non-Alawi or politically as non-Baathists. Anyway, you put it, the government was a minority opinion. But the majority was influenced once you had more than 10% decided. We saw this not only in Syria, the scientist Dr. Zemansky talks about in Tunisia, how the data shows a deflection over time. They looked at weeks and months of ideas going, and then once slowly, as the population holding an idea got above 10 to 12%, the committed to an opinion, committed to an opinion they talked about initially holding both opinions those who hold opinion b which is contrary and those who hold opinion a which is the movement barometer and that when 10 percent held opinion a the shift in ideas went not only from those without either opinion a or b towards a but those with b started to shift to a because they were afraid they were going to lose the momentum of the population and the cultural shifts. 
This is such an important study. I believe we saw it in the conservative movement in the Tea Party movement. Ask yourselves as Americans, what percent of the conservative movement was involved in the Tea Party movement 2009, 2010, 2011, which started as a groundswell against Obamacare and government-controlled health care? I think it'll show that at the end of the day, all the town halls, the hundreds and thousands of town halls that began to happen from from coast to coast involved ultimately a threshold tipping point of 10% of the Republican Party. What percent of the population voting in the Republican Party did Donald Trump have initially? Later, he won, obviously, with 30-40% in most states as he won the primaries and other candidates dropped out, but it was initially 10%. Now, you may say others had that, but he held on to that 10%, and then it grew. You can find many, many examples to fit it, and you might be able to find some that don't. But from a reform perspective, from the Muslim reform movement, people say, boy, you know, You guys don't have a chance, and you know what? You couldn't even get the mosque to support you. We say, well, hold on a second. We've talked about that at this podcast before. We never expected the mosque to support us. They're the Islamists for the most part. 80 to 90% of the mosques are controlled by Islamists who believe in an Islamic state concept, believe in a Sharia state. They may not be violent, but at the end of the day, they're not going to reform the ideas or even acknowledge the precursor nature of Islamism, nonviolent Islamism with violent Islamism. But studies have shown that the non-affiliated, the unaffiliated Muslims are somewhere between 85 and 90 percent. So the Islamists understood that with 10 percent of the population in their pocket, they can control who we are as Muslims. And they've done it year after year with great funding from the petrodollars, petro-Islamic influence, the Islamists prove that with 10%, and their ideas have grown beyond that. For most societies, especially Muslim majorities, the, the Islamists are 25 to 30% on an average day. can be up to 40% if you add in the Salafis and other fundamentalists that sometimes don't even care about politics. So what do we do? gets me back to the point of my previous two segments, which is this is a cultural battle. We have to begin to engage not only at every point possible in media, including radio, television, social media, Twitter, YouTube, every venue, podcasts and all, but we have to begin to try to get towards that 10% and include courageous icons who may have their own tenor of the way they want to do it, may not want to confront Governments by name, whatever they want to do, they need to join us in the mentality of freedom, individual rights, universal human rights, women's rights. Find that topic, that idea, whether it be against female genital mutilation, against four women being able to drive, for example, in Saudi Arabia alone. Wherever it may be, the defense of individual rights can become a cultural shift within the Muslim identity that then embraces Western identity, be it American, Australian, British, French, German, whatever it may be. As we embrace that, Muslims who embrace their Western identity and reject 
the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamist mentality. Once we start getting that threshold to 10%, people will see and begin to realize reformist Muslims exist. We are not lone voices, lone wolves. We are the pack, and we are not victims. Take a look at the study about the tipping point. I think it's key to the future of reform within the Muslim community. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards. Well, I hit the stop button just in time there because we had a... uh, we went to a break, and all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. We had two dogs run out of the house. We had kids dropping F-bombs. I mean, oh my gosh, that was that was kind of crazy. That was kind of crazy. <laughs> 40 Acres and a Fool, on demand. Download episodes at theblaze.com slash radio. SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to our last segment this week of Reform This. And I just want to take a second to thank you for your friendship, for your connection with me, for subscribing or listening to this podcast. I can't tell you what this podcast means to me, what our time together means to me. And I hope, uh, you know, what's great about podcasts and books and writing is that they live on forever. They're part of our legacy, and I hope to all of you, uh, you do the things obviously in your life that are the most important to you in your legacy, and thank you for allowing me to share with you the ideas that I think are going to be central to protecting the security, the sanctity, freedom of liberty, and the future of our kids. We were talking about sort of the, the threshold for change in society and how the scientists deduced that it was 10% for an idea of a minority once you have that vocal, strong, believing, committed minority of 10% that that then takes off and can become a majority opinion much quickly while ideas at 7, 8, 9% will often not go any further and will stay in the footnotes of history as ineffectual movements. And I think one of the commonalities you'll find, and this is what I wanted to spend this last few minutes together talking about, one of the commonalities you will find is that in these movements of 10%, it usually involves not only the politicians or the academicians, it involves cultural leaders social entertainment leaders, that cross-section, business, entertainment, all of it. And if you look at the Syrian revolution again, their revolution wasn't only about defeating Ba'athist tyranny. It was about regaining their identity, their humanity. So many Syrians we've talked to said while they are living in hell on earth since the beginning of the revolution in March 2011, Many of them, for the first time, feel alive. They feel alive. They feel human again. 
So when humanity speaks together, what percent of that voice needs to be heard? That tree falling on an island. Does anybody hear it? If nobody hears it, does it make a sound? How many trees need to fall before we all hear the sound of those falling trees? There's a creative memory project in Syria of the Syrian Revolution. In French, it's called the Memoir Creative of the Revolution in Syria. And these artists, these poets, write the poetry and the pictures on murals, on walls, in Aleppo, in Damascus, in Daraa, in in, uh, Homs, in Hama, in Kaframbol. These are towns that were devastated by the revolution and still are fighting in the war against ISIS, against the regime, against the many heads of the hydra of evil that have come out from the Assad tyranny, the Assad-led tyranny of his regime, his military thugs. But the Creative Memory Project, they will tell you, and if you read about it, look it up, the Syrian Creative Memory Project. They'll tell you, there are many times they finish a mural and an hour later it's destroyed. But in their mind, they know it existed. They took a picture of it and sent it around the world. And then they draw another one. And the ISIS folks, the, the Assad military, blows it up intentionally and finds it. And all it is is pictures of, of, of children of different faiths, Christian, Muslim, Alawi, Shia, Sunni, whatever it may be, coming together, enjoying freedom, talking about hurriye, demokratiye, Arabic words about about liberty. And the regime will destroy them. And that creative memory project brought to mind this issue of cultural shift. If you look at the universities in the Middle East, yes, the ones in the Middle East rooted from there are regime government universities. But what about Western schools that set up shop in the Middle East? Do they bring with them creative memory projects? Sorry to tell you, they do not. They do not. When Harvard, Georgetown, other schools open foundations, university branches, chapters, campuses in Qatar, in Dubai, in Saudi Arabia, what do they open? Schools of medicine, schools of science, of engineering. No liberal arts, no humanities schools, no political science schools, no journalism schools. Is that a coincidence? It is not. Because the governments know that ultimately medical education taught in a way that's black and white about memorizing anatomy and physiology and Western science being brought in is not going to be a threat to the regime. But human beings inventing, writing music, writing newspapers, magazines, journalism, learning about how to bring their creativity to their own identity would ultimately be the fuse 
that would destroy those regimes. And you know what? I blame our Western schools. Why the hell are we investing in Qatar and Dubai? Some of our most wealthy institutions are planting themselves in the Arab Peninsula only to become tools of the regime that somehow creating future Arab doctors with Western-type educations without understanding liberal arts and humanities is somehow going to help the future. It doesn't. It's like athletics. Athletics, you know, the Russians have always been very strong in the Olympics. They pay their athletes and and uh, um, have a competitive aspect. The ones that don't do well are tortured. The ones that do do well are living lavish lives to represent the Russian team in the Olympics. But athletes who follow orders are not threats to a regime. Inventors who think about new apps, new arts, artistic venues, new products, and new poetry and music and film and other things, those would threaten and derail a regime. Those would be the fuse that would become the end of the current tyrannies in the Middle East. Why is there no products? Why are there no... I defy any of you, please. If you know any, send them to me. Other than desalination, <laughs> there's no inventions that have come out of the Middle East in the last over 50 years, if not 80 to 100 years. Zero. Because the governments have stifled human creativity. There are no free markets. There's no individual identification with personal productivity. Instead... In Saudi Arabia, 90-some percent of the population are on the government dime as government employees. And there are no schools of humanities. There are no creative memory projects. In Syria, in the, in the depth of the hell of this revolution, this memory project has given them a sense of humanity that for the first time they are alive. So sometimes you they pay a very high price to be human beings and no longer to be slaves, dogs to the revol to the government and to the regimes. So if you know anybody at Harvard or Georgetown or other schools that are sending doing these dual exchange programs, yes, we've even trained their princes and their families. I, I was a naval officer and I remember at Newport as I was doing officer indoctrination school, saw I saw kids from royal families coming through from Saudi Arabia, from Jordan and elsewhere. Many of these rich, spoiled billionaires' kids because of Petro-Islam get a good Cambridge, Harvard education and go back and become mafiosos, tyrants of the regime. Do you think they become liberal liberals because of the exposure here? I think they get exposed and live a different life when they're here. But they go back because of klepto kleptocracy and corruption to do little to change their societies. But my family was educated in the West, 
and they will tell you that they learned liberalism, liberal ideas from being educated in London and in France and elsewhere. So it depends on the mindset that you bring with you and the mindset that you take back into the families that you live with there. So a corrupt royal family that sends its kids here will bring back kids, regardless of their education, that remain corrupt. But a moral, humble family that sends its, its children here to be educated will bring those ideas back to change those societies. But if we plant campuses of engineering and medicine only, and no human arts, no humanities, there'll be little change. So at the Muslim reform movement, and this reform that I think is so integral to defeating the theocrats in Islam, we're seeking to get to that 10%, 11 12 13%. Find avenues, both in the, in the left and the right, as we broaden our platform from Bill Maher to Fox News, whatever it may be, in the political side, and take it to the cultural side in Hollywood, to the comic side in cartoons with DC Comics, to the musical side, from Ariana Grande to Zayn Malik, and to every level, to the talk shows, the daytime soap operas, whatever it may be, in every aspect, we need to begin to challenge to challenge what are the mores, the establishment mores of what it means to be Muslim and what it means to be reform-minded and push the buttons of the things that they get offended by. Because if you cannot criticize Islam and beliefs by certain Muslims, you'll never be able to reform these ideas. And it needs creativity. You need to push the envelope. Those who push the envelope are the ones that will bring change. Those who do it subtly and talk about change over 10 to 20 years, it will never happen. So help me. Take the message that revolution, disruption, disruption is good. Disruption is good. Might bring chaos, might bring revolution, might bring bloodshed because of the chaotic nature, especially when you're pushing up against military tyrannies that only know one language, which is to shoot and imprison and torture their ideological enemies. But ultimately, disruption will bring change. Status quo, accepting power structures will not bring change, will not bring creativity, will not bring humanity. Thank you for joining me. Have a great week, and we'll catch you next week on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. God bless. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network.